0: Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us today. We are in part two of a mini-series entitled, A Surprising Way to Renew the Church. There are countless articles and blog posts and broadcasts, everybody giving their two cents, basically, that how can we bring renewal to the church, especially in light of the crisis that seems to be plaguing the Catholic Church at this point in time. And so, basically, these two broadcasts, I'm trying to share a surprising way that we might work in renewing the church because, yes, we need to stop the wrong things that are going on, but just as important, or probably a lot more important, is to also implement positive things to bring renewal to the church. So, here is my surprising way to renew the church, part two. But just so you remember, in case and in case you weren't with us for the first broadcast, my way was very simple. Let's bring in um, a few hundred Scott Hans, people just like Scott Hahn into the church. Look at the good that Scott has done through his uh, lectures and talks and so many conferences and parishes all around North America. His books, his articles, his apostolate, the St. Paul Center, all of these wonderful things, training deacons and priests, how about having hundreds of Scott Hans come in? Because what I'm trying to build up a certain level of of faith that this could be done is that there's a wide group of very talented, pious, evangelical leaders that are ripe for bringing in to the Catholic Church. And the way to do that, I suggested, is that we need to focus our apologetics. It's my belief they have been greatly diluted by the two or 300 very frequent questions that get asked, and these are valid questions, but they are secondary questions. There's one question that has divided Catholics and Protestants, for 501 years, and that is the doctrine of justification. And unfortunately, that's the one topic that so many Catholics seem to be not asking questions about uh, in the media and online forums and such like that. Uh, They also seem ill-equipped to be able to share this. I recounted Last time, the story of Richard White, while he was an evangelical seminary student, he wrote a nine-page paper for one of the leading evangelical scholars in the United States at the time, Dr. Harold O.J. Brown, who had four degrees from Harvard University, and Richard White wrote this nine-page paper simply articulating what the Catholic Church believed about justification, He didn't try to prove it or disprove it, just present it. Nine pages. He came back to class, not knowing exactly how this leading evangelical professor would grade his paper. He not only got a great grade, but the professor made copies of his paper for every member of the class. And as Richard came into the classroom just a little bit late, Dr. Brown said to Richard, Richard, when are you going to take the big step? And Richard replied, well, Dr. Brown, I'm not even engaged yet. Richard was thinking he was talking about getting married. Dr. Brown was talking about becoming a Catholic, the big step. Why? If there's nothing left to protest regarding justification, that if in Catholic justification it is by grace, as the evangelicals also assert. Then there's no protest. You know, it's very interesting that Scott Hahn, we were together in some of these large conferences, Catholic conferences out in California, at his own expense... Scott made copies of Richard White's essay because he realized that if you just state what the Catholics believe, nine pages, and he Scott was giving out copies free of charge at his own expense. Why is he doing that? Because Scott realizes there's other Scots out there just waiting to be invited in, and it's up to just— average everyday folks to take this information, and even if you can't articulate it, just in a humble way says, you know, I don't really understand all of this, but I really think you ought to take the time to read these nine pages. And so it's very interesting, the the conclusion of this story that Richard White uh, went on to get a doctorate, and I think he did study a lot about justification for his doctoral work. He's now the chair of theology in a very great Catholic college. How about that? So what I'm pleading with you is that anyone listening to this broadcast can be used by God to bring other Scott Hans into the church. And I know you're thinking, I can't do this. I can't. Yes, you can. One of the ways to do this is I've written a book entitled Grace and Justification, subtitled An Evangelical's Guide to Catholic Beliefs. Now, my book is obviously intended to help Catholics understand their faith and understand what evangelicals believe, but I put it right on the title page so that evangelicals could see that they're welcome to read this. This is an evangelical guidebook by the title, and in the appendix, because actually Scott insisted I put the appendix in there, is Richard White's nine-page essay. You can give a copy of that book to an evangelical leader professor, pastor, pro-life leader, and say, well, you know, if you're really in a hurry, just read the nine pages in the appendix. Can you do that? I think you can, and this would be a great way to share the Catholic faith and bring hundreds of Scott Hans. This is waiting to happen, and I told the story last time, but it bears repeating again. I was out in Texas this year and talked to a Uh, an army man who was working with the Catholic chaplain and the other Protestant chaplains. And he told me a lot of these chaplains are reading the church fathers and becoming small-c Catholic. And so he would say, after having nice conversations with them, well, when are you going to convert to Catholicism? And they said, well, I can't. And he goes, why? Justification. This is the big question where we want to focus on. When we do this, there will be a lot of conversions. It seems to, I, for whatever reason, kind of uh, we're a little blind to this. And here's the reason why this is actually much easier than what you might think. Because you could say, I could never bring a Protestant leader into church. You don't have to write a book, you don't have to write a nine page essay. You just need to be aware of the resource to be able to share with somebody. And realizing, that most of the Protestant leaders you encounter have only heard half of the story. They've heard the Protestant half of the story, and they have heard that the Catholic faith denies that justification is by grace. And as soon as they see that that is not true, well, when are you going to take the big step? and there will not be anything holding them back. Nothing left to, pro. this is the beef of protesting Catholicism. This is why you have Protestantism. It's not the two or 300 other questions. They're valid questions, and those questions need to be answered after you finally get over protesting. But this is the big hurdle. Okay, now, today I want to tackle another question. And it's a big, very significant question, what do you do with these men? You know, uh, there's a great organization that Marcus Grody heads up called the Coming Home Network, and I get his newsletter, and in the newsletters are testimonies of various Protestant leaders who have converted to Catholicism. And I was reading one of the Coming Home Network newsletters and his testimony, and this guy was the most dedicated Bible student. He read the Bible about a zillion times, studied it to no end, taught it to no end, gave himself to no end, to spreading the truth about Scripture. And then I got to the end of the article, I almost started crying. I can remember seeing, I can see myself right now eating lunch and reading this article coming to the end, selling supplemental Medicare insurance. Is that really the best we can do for somebody with this level of talent? I have another convert friend, also very talented, and he became a Catholic, and his priest was bound and determined to find something worthwhile for him to do, and he really, really puzzled with this. What do you do with one of these Protestant converts, particularly those who are gifted in teaching and experience? Uh, explaining the scriptures in an understandable way. Well, the priest finally came uh, to him and said, I figured something out for you. Well, what is it? You can become our parish bingo caller. Really? Is that the best we can do? Now, I'm going to date myself, but some of you remember the TV show, The Beverly Hillbillies. These were hillbillies from, I forgot where they were from, but there was oil or petroleum discovered on their property and became multi-millionaires. So these hillbillies moved to Beverly Hills and had this gorgeous mansion. And when they first came in this mansion, they had this beautiful pool room with this pool table, custom queues and all this type of thing. And they looked at it trying to figure out what it was. And they think, well, this must be the dining room table that they glued the tablecloth on. And so they put their chairs and had dinner on the pool table. And then they got the cue sticks and said, these are the pot passers. And, you know, it was very funny because it was just like misusing very expensive, worthwhile things for, you know, uh, an unintended use. So, Fortunately, my friend, who uh, it were who was suggested to be the bingo caller, Mother Angelica had a lot better ideas for him, and uh, I'm happy to report that um, he is being used with his gifts. But what do you do with these men coming in? Um, and I, I'm saying a large number of men can come in, even with the current situation in a church once they see that Catholics believe that justification is by grace and have a reasonable explanation of that that's backed up, there's not the protest. The stinger has been removed. The anti-Catholic venom has been removed, and then you can deal with the other objections, but this one comes first. So what do you do? Here's my suggestion, and it's the surprising way to renew the church. Use these folks as faith filled Bible teachers in parishes. Have them teach teens, have them teach the young adult groups, have them teach the parents, and teach in parishes, or have a group of parishes come together and use these people to teach the Scriptures in a way that truly renews the individual Catholic's and as a result, renews the parishes, and and there are parishes doing this. I'm just suggesting both a widespread apologetics-focused thrust on justification by grace, followed up with using these people, like some parishes are. We need many more. I think the best example that uh, I'm aware of is that my friend Jeff Caven's is being was used. By the Archdiocese of uh, Saint Paul and Minneapolis to teach Scripture, and they had wonderful results from that. I'm saying this can actually be something that can be spread consciously right through the church. Now, here is the question that's going to come up: Where, where is the money going to come from to support these talented Scripture scholars? and since most have families, oh, this just this is absolutely impossible. Well, let me tell you about what, as far as I know, is the largest survey of Christians in the 2,000-year history of the church since Jesus. This was a survey of a, over 100,000 Christians. You know, most surveys— one two maybe three thousands a large survey a hundred thousand christians and what they found if a christian will have a meaningful engagement with scripture not just like doing it to doing it and thinking that some kind of magic spell will happen but meaningfully seeking god through an engagement of scripture either listening to it and you can do that on smartphones in so many ways today or reading it, or both, but if you have four or more times a week where your mind and heart are engaged in Scripture, the likelihood is that there is a 416% greater likelihood to give financially to a church, 416% more likely to give financially to a church. There are plenty of dollars to support these men and their families with, I underline, a living wage. The earliest church manual direction book and new convert uh, manual in the early church was a document called the Didache, simply means the teaching in Greek. And this early, early, early church document, I mean, the pages of the New Testament were barely dry when this was written. It says this, every genuine teacher is, like the worker, worthy of his food. Another translation from the Greek of the Didache, a little bit more user-friendly language, says a genuine teacher is as much entitled to his keep as a manual laborer. In other words, you pay this man a salary as much as at least you would pay your plumber. And plumbers make a pretty decent living in today's world. Now, let's say you put in an expensive new stained glass window in your sanctuary for your parish, and I love stained glass windows, love looking at them, but I I, I don't have any scientific studies to validate this, but my guess is a new stained glass window will not be prompting parishioners to give 416% more to your parish, but engaging in scriptures four more times a week will. Now, a lot of parishes are trying to get electronic transfer giving or giving with the smartphones and all of that, and that will increase giving, but I can almost guarantee you it won't be anything near a 416% greater likelihood of giving. Or you can dole out the cash and hire an expensive fundraising consultant, and that's not going to approach 416% greater likelihood. Now, I realize that um, most people listening to me right now, and particularly parish budget committees or whatever, whoever makes the budget, are just thinking, I am insane and this is never going to work, and you have stark disbelief for my surprising way to renew the church. So this is what I would propose For somebody listening to me, and if you do this, I appreciate you would contact me personally, and I don't need to mention your name on the air in the future or anything else, but there's a businessman out there or a professional, and God has blessed you with some money. My suggestion would be uh, to overcome the stark disbelief that this could possibly work is that you invest, and I do think this is an investment in the Catholic Church in your area. Invest— sufficient funds for 18 to 24 months to supply a living wage to a Bible teacher position for your parish or the various parishes in your area. And you do this and see what happens after 18 to 24 months. And then if it flops, well, it was a good try. (laughs) If it takes off, then you back off and let the parish Uh, supply that type of support. Now, there's a couple of things that are really important before you do this, because I do believe in wisely investing money. In fact, that Didache, that early church teaching I just mentioned, it says, uh, before you give anything to anyone or anything, uh, hold it in your hand and let your hand grow sweaty before you do it. In other words, think before you jump. And, And I'm saying, Be careful in two steps before you make such an investment as I'm advocating. Number one, do not hire someone who has digested and accepted higher criticism. Now you don't need to know everything about higher criticism, but let me tell you the fruits of it, Uh, modern higher critical theories of scripture basically undermining the authority of Scripture. It all started in Germany, and one of the theories was called J-E-D-P, that Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible, but J-E-D-P did, these four guys, who have now expanded to sometimes six, sometimes eight, or whatever number. But it was interesting. It was first taught in a Lutheran seminary, and to me, I have great respect for the professor who came up with this who acknowledged his fatal error, because these were men who were going to become Lutheran pastors sitting in this seminary classroom, and when they encountered JEDP, winsomely taught by this professor, all of them, all of them lost their faith. All of them. And to think today, listen to me carefully, in majority of both Protestant, including evangelical seminaries and Catholic seminaries, this is the critical theory taught to seminarians about the first five books of the Bible. You can fish this out real quickly. You'll hear a newly ordained priest talk about the sacred author because he's been brainwashed by liberal German higher criticism that Catholics have swallowed and many evangelicals have swallowed. So what happens when Genesis authority goes? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah, that's part of it. It's a myth. And uh, remember when Lot warned his sons-in-law that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah before their moral wickedness? And his future sons-in-law, like, come on, you got to be kidding. This is a joke, right? No, it wasn't a joke. Okay, And how do you get into a situation where anything goes morally in a church? Well, this could start in a German seminary classroom that's now in the majority of classrooms through the United States. Such men who have digested this higher critical stuff spread disbelief, not faith. So avoid them. You'll be wasting your money. Okay, and you can, you can figure this out by asking Basically, three simple questions. Who wrote in substantial form, in the substantial form that we have today, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the four Gospels, and the 13 Pauline Epistles? Just let me qualify this real quick. I said substantial form. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, the fifth book of the Pentateuch, the last chapter, chapter 34, talks about what happened uh, after Moses died and how he was buried. Obviously, Moses didn't write that. That was added on as an editor to kind of pull the Pentateuch together, and everybody recognizes that Moses didn't write that. And so the liberals will come and tell you, well, look, Moses couldn't have written Deuteronomy 34, so he couldn't have written Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In other words, they ditch five books of the Bible using that phony argument. The four Gospels, who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Leading Catholic scripture scholar Raymond Brown says that John didn't write it the way we have it today. It was a community of beloved disciples edited whatever he wrote, and this was a century or two later. This is fatal. This is toxic to belief. And then finally, who wrote the 13 Pauline epistles? Uh, Hebrews, the epistle to Hebrews is up for grabs because nobody's name appears. It's an anonymous epistle. But the 13 Pauline epistles begin with the word Paul. And it's very common today to deny that Paul wrote or didn't write two, three, four, maybe even half of the Pauline epistles, So just ask. Who wrote the Pentateuch, the four Gospels, the thirteen Pauline epistles? And if they can't give you a straight answer, say thank you very much. We're moving on to the next candidate. And then, secondly, this is a second, this is on the positive sign, hire a person who understands what knowing God is all about. This is the Catholic faith. You know, the first words of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the prologue, opens up with these words, Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know, a surprising number of very smart Christian leaders have the foggiest ideas of what it means to know God. I was recently uh, in Chicago and attended a wonderful seminar. It was an ecumenical seminar of evangelicals, Orthodox, and Catholics. But one speaker who is a graduate of the Harvard Divinity School began his talk with a sarcastic critique of what he called heart religion— And by that, he illustrated it with a very shallow, emotionally driven piety. And obviously that's seriously lacking his substitute was an intellectual uh, religion rather than what he called the heart religion. And I don't know how well he studied his Greek New Testament at Harvard, but in the Greek New Testament, the emotions are not referred to by the heart. If you want a part of the human anatomy that refers to the heart, It's the guts or the bowels. Uh, Obviously, you have the mind for thinking, but the heart combined with the mind is the deepest seat of knowledge. And this is what perhaps one of the brightest men to sit in the chair of Peter in centuries said, Pope Benedict XVI, quote, the organ for seeing God is the heart. The intellect alone is not enough, unquote. And in Ephesians chapter 1, St. Paul says, I don't stop praying for you, that you would get the gift from God, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of your heart are enlightened that you may know God. Hey, when a person comes not to know about God, but through the scriptures are taught to know God, everything changes in your life your outlook, your morals, your family life, your worldview, and yes, even your financial life. So what do you do? Focus on justification. Win hundreds of Scott Hans. Two, use these converts to teach scriptures and parishes. Three, finance them. Somebody finance them to get this thing going with a living wage for 18 to 24 months. The effect? Catholics will have hearts on fire. The results? Lots of dollars for worthwhile projects. And since they'll have discernment from Scripture, a lot of these projects will involve evangelism and the new evangelism. All right, I'm going to close with a Scripture from Luke 24, verse 32. They said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? You've been listening to episode 213 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.